Good morning, everybody. Cheers, Mark. Thank you. You want to be able to see my face this morning, don't you? Um, we're halfway through then our series, our short series on two Peter. Tim um, opened up last week with obviously one Peter, uh, two Peter one. Chapter 1, and he had a good message to bring you. And uh, you'll notice when uh, Paul has been reading to us that this is not particularly the, the best or most uplifting sermon that you'll ever hear. It starts off with a big but, after some good news, and ends up with dog's vomit. It gives you an impression of what this, this actual passage is like. Well, I don't know if you ever played poo sticks, but I have. You know, what Pooh Bear introduced to the greater world, that you go to one side of a bridge, drop a stick, and then see which uh, stick comes out first the other side. Do you get, it, get the times, though, when you drop your stick, and it never comes out the other side? And then you peer down, and you see why you've lost, because it's become entangled uh, with some other dross and flotsam and jetsam on the sides of the, of the stream. Well, this is a little bit of a a picture of what it may be like, or the warning that it's given to us in this passage. As Christians, we have um, a beginning, and we have a destination. But unfortunately, it's not all smooth sailing. And there's things which may trap us, which may cause us that the destination to be is not going to happen. The thing is, this is the important thing to remember, that we do have a destination. A lot of the issues and problems that Christians may uh, encounter it's because they come to the point of salvation and say thank you God for saving me but they forget where they're being saved to or what they're being saved to it doesn't just end up being justified before God God is looking to transform us he's looking to bring us to a a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus Christ comes again he's looking for us to become more godly and he wants us to be assured of this fact Uh, Back in chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, those those list of righteous and um, good moral living, you will never fall. He's looking at us to build the character of God in our own lives. At the end of his letter, just as a way of reminder, he says, Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of your lawless men, and fall from your secure position. He wants us to be assured that A is the beginning, and B is the definite destination that you will find yourself up, up in. And fundamental to this is the knowledge of God. That's what we looked at last week. The commandments and promises is critically important to Peter in this letter. Now his opening his opening uh, greeting is that we may grow in the greater knowledge of our uh, of the knowledge of our God and of Jesus Christ. And you see, knowledge in his letter serves a dual function. We see that in verse four of chapter one. Flick back. Though these have been given to us, uh, though these, though through these, sorry, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that so that through them you may. Number one, participate in the divine nature. And number two, escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 
So we had chapter 1. We had that exhortation to participate in that divine nature, growing as a result of knowing, which is what Tim, the, uh, uh, Tim spoke on last week. But now we get to chapter 2. And we get the escaping the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. You see, we do live in a world which is not all plain sailing. We do live in a world that is corrupted. And we do live in a world where God's voice is not the only voice. And this is the big problem. We can choose to listen to whom we like because God's voice is one of many. We have here a battle. This is what's laid out in front of us. A battle between God's word and his promises and false teachers. We have theology and doctrine which comes flowing out from the Bible against invention and baseless ideas. But the spores of the battle is not about winning an argument about who knows more of the Bible or who's more theologically sound or proving yourself to be right and the other person wrong. It's not about that. You see, the spores of this victory are the stability and assurance that the Bible gives to all believers. It's talking about your life, my life. It's about mortal danger. It's not about theological doctrines. You see, the stakes cannot be higher. Well, we get to chapter 2. And today it's uh, titled, The Right Way, Don't Stray. We're looking at getting to B without being caught in the sides. I've also given another subtitle. I was having a bit of a play with the words. Steady, because you're ready. In here is a warning, so that we may be steady, stable, assured in our faith. Well, we do get verses 1 to 3 then. We're introducing the danger and the threat to us. And so we get to my first point, which is the masked threat to the way of righteousness in a corrupt world. First, first, the first three verses just gives us a synopsis, just an overview of what he's going to be dealing with in chapter 2. It's talking about the threat of false teachers. And he brings us he brings into focus a few points which we need to be wary of, to be on our guard for. I'm going to list a few from the first three verses. You see, they have a disguise. It says, but but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. You see, the NIV actually misses out a real vital word, which will probably give us alarm bells if we actually put it back in. It says in the um, ESV that people arose among you. It's not that foreigners came in to bring a false message to the church, but from within, from within your own kind. They were one of us. They are one of us. And how alarming is that? How do you defend, defend against that which comes from within? Well, they're disguised, and among us, they bring secretly destructive heresies in the the middle of verse 1. In verse 13, the end of verse 13, it says, They revel in their pleasures while they feast with you. You see, they are amongst us, yet we may not notice them. 
it's been said that for every church that is established, Satan builds a chapel. And if that doesn't shake us out of complacency, I don't know what will. To be on our guard, which is what Peter wants us to be. On our guard. Surely we would spot heresy a mile off. It says that they deny even uh, the Master, the Lord Jesus. Well, that would be quite an easy one to spot if I came up here preaching that Jesus isn't the Christ. He isn't Lord. He isn't God. And salvation isn't the way by grace alone. I'd hope you'd boo me down and get rid of me and throw me out of the church. But they secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. It's like when you peel off a plaster really slowly, then they're the ones which have been stuck on your hairs. But you do it slowly so you don't notice it. Well, in the same way, they introduce heresies, false teaching, in a slow and surreptitious manner. The serpent, the snake, was in the garden as he spoke to Eve. And he is very much alive in the churches today. That subtle, disguising twist of what the truth is. And the, and the worrying thing is, these are supposed to be the teachers. These are the ones who you feel legitimizes what the Bible says. Through their positions of authority, they will speak falsehood. Destructive heresies. You see, they have destructive influence. Verse 2, it says they lead many astray by sensuality. It's that lewdness, the, the, the darker passion of sexual drive. You see, they are the equivalent of the Pied Piper was, the children of Hamlet, but instead of playing a magic flute or a magic pipe, he's playing a tune which we would want to hear if we were so much inclined. You see, the way of truth is just, uh, blasphemed as well. This is the influence that he has on churches. You know, when the church and the message that it preaches, the gospel message that we are founded and grounded on, are so intimately linked, when something happens within a church, well, the gospel is maligned as well. People look at the gospel and say, well, it makes no difference, look at them. We rob it of its power if we fail to be on our guard. We see their nature as well in these first three verses, but these are expanded a lot more between uh, verses 10 and 16, so I won't go into too much detail. But you can see that they have corrupt desires. No, they haven't got a desire to um, worship or honour God. It's a matter of worshipping and honouring their own bodies. It talks a lot about the sensual passions of the flesh. But it's this girl-chasing old man kind of passion. The one which you know if people knew openly that they would probably tut at. You know, they're there to feed their sexual appetite and to promote that pro- promiscuity and liberty. They're also greedy as well. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you. If you think they're doing you a favor by telling you what you think uh, you want to hear, well, they're not. It's here they're exploiting you. They're using God's word so that they may gain what they want. 
They despise authority. We've seen that they despise the master. It is, uh, they, they deny the sovereign Lord. And this is not just openly just by word, but also by deed. They practice what they preach. But remember, they secretly introduce these false teachings. In, verse, in chapter 3, he says, I don't care about Jesus because he's not coming back. And all of this is under the cloak of religion. Uh, it's, it's been unfortunate to hear, isn't it, in the news recently about Jimmy Savile. People are shocked. Some people are shocked. But then we hear that he's been walking around the BBC studios doing these kind of um, things that he's been accused of quite openly. But people are still shocked. He's a charity worker. He's given lots of money and time and effort to charity. He seems so good, yet walks around abusing children, allegedly. But this is, this, this is a picture of what's happening here. It's both secret and public. People knew, but they didn't say. We must be on our guard for false teaching, teaching that will deny who Jesus is and will rob people of eternal life. Well, who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Tra-la-la-la-la-la. No, not me. Well, maybe. Maybe you should be afraid of the big bad wolf. You see, I don't know where you are in your Christian life or your maturity, but see who they prey upon. The end of verse 14 it says, they entice unsteady souls. Verse 18, those barely escaping. The subtitle to this, this sermon was, the danger of living on the edge. You see, those most likely to end up among those who follow, as we see, many will follow their shameful ways. Those who are going to end up following are those who are not grounded in the Bible, in the scripture to which they've been saved through. These may be the new Christians, the undiscipled, the ones who, who have got to the point where they know that Jesus is Lord and they've bent their knee, but they haven't taken it any more, further. It's not knowing the difference between feeding a Labrador and an untamed wolf. You know, it may be that this is a result of being passive about your faith. Or maybe you've been proactively choosing not to live, uh, to choose to live life on the edge, to not pick up your Bibles. Well, there is a danger. And it's this is which Peter is uh, drawing our attention to. There are wolves, there are false teachers. Be on guard. You see, because their destiny is so much different to what, they, uh, to what we know. You see, they may preach without impunity. They may walk the halls of the churches giving their um, own testimonies and seem to have their cake and eat it. And sometimes even whole churches are built around them because they preach a popular and easy message. They don't bring the hard messages that come They'll only look to the easy messages. However, at the end of verse 3, we see that their condemnation 
has long been hanging over them, and their destruction is not sleeping. So we see, between verses 4 and 10, the ungodly won't get away with it. If you're tempted to go their way, remember, they're not going to escape. Here we get three illustrations from the Old Testament that Peter draws our attention to. Each bringing a a little different perspective on that fate. Well, it says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. You see, angels, mighty and powerful, if we are to think of all that God has created, there would be none mightier than the archangel Michael. Wow! He, he's a good battle and a warrior for God. Yet, even he will not... Um, be spared. He wouldn't even be spared if he had sinned. You see, their position and, and place in God's creation doesn't give them any right to blaspheme against God, to teach false things, and not be on the judgment of God. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, verse 5, You see, there's no safety in numbers. Surely God wouldn't destroy a whole world. But yet if they are ungodly, unrepentant, unwilling to recognize who Jesus is, well, we see in the past that he has brought the flood on them. And then we see in verse 6 about Sodom and Gomorrah. By burning them to ashes, he made an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. It's quite a... It's quite a picture of Sodom and Gomorrah. Read it if you have chance. Because out of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were practicing exactly what the false teachers here in chapter 2 are actually telling us is right to do. And yet, look what happened. How scary would it be to face the uh, the raining fire and sulfur from heaven to be burnt up by God's wrath because you're doing what the false teachers are saying. However, like... Rays of light in a dark place. We get two other ifs to tell us about God's uh, sovereignty in not only judgment, but delivering, taking people, uh, believers from A to B, to that glorious destiny that we have been promised. You see, Noah, in verse 5, stands out. He stood up and preached righteousness. That's what he did. In a world, a whole world, which had become ungodly. But Noah, that madman who built a boat, who everybody ridiculed, he preached righteousness. He preached the justice of God. He preached preached the grace of God. God will condemn those who are unrepentant, but he will save those who look to him. Then we have Lot in verse 7. The unsettled heart of a believer. You see, he was one amongst many. Amongst many who were listening to the false teachers. Yet, in his struggle, in his anxiety of witnessing things going wrong, it says that God 
delivered him. God is sovereign to judge. God is sovereign to deliver. So whether it's the fate of the ungodly or the fate of the unbelievers, God knows how to do it. And so there should be an encouragement to those who do believe, because God will save. Well, let's not us fear the same fate of those false teachers. And you see, though, when we should fear God, his justice, we read in verse 10 how they are instead. Instead of fearful, they are bold and arrogant. And so we see the third point where as we look the verses between 10 and 16. We see the blind arrogance of the false teachers. So verse 10 and 10 to 16, we, we get a little glimpse. Of, we're looking under the bonnet. What's really on the inside as we, we saw about those sour tangerines earlier? Were they sour tangerines? But we're getting under the bonnet of who these people are. You see... This description in these verses are really sinister. If we were to wear everything that this person was, if we could see that, you know, we would be disgusted. We'd be shocked when things are revealed. However, we must remember that they bring in heresies secretly. They feast with us. And so what's, what's happening now, we, we get a pilling back and having a look at the foulness of the false teachers. You see, we want our teachers to be godly. We need to trust in them. But here is a huge warning to us all to what men may well be like. You see, they trivialize things. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. Well, I'm not too um, sure about the situation, but what it is saying here is that this archangel, Michael or Gabriel, in all their might and splendor in their position before God, are not going to slander celestial beings. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, these are spiritual beings. These are angels which have sinned and are under the judgment of God, as we read in verse 4. It's those angels which God did not spare when they sinned. You see, we may take glibly and quite lightly the power of demonic forces in this world. We might poo-poo them. We might say, well, they're a load of rubbish. I can't see them. I shouldn't be wary of them. But just wait one moment. This is exactly what the false teachers say. He's saying that even uh, even the angels in heaven dare not minimize the impact that uh, fallen angels will have on our lives. It shows an arrogance and boldness against things they do not know. They trivialize it. They're described as irrational animals, verse 12. Like brute beasts, creatures of instinct. You see, 
they operate without reason. They will bypass what is reasonable, which is in the Bible. It's like jumping off a cliff and thinking you're going to float. They just don't think through the consequences. We don't float. We fall. And when we fall, we splat, especially if it's a long way to go. It's foolishness, isn't it? You might laugh at that illustration, but that is exactly what is being pictured here by the false teachers. They're like irrational animals, lemmings. You see, this is the opposite, though, being described as an irrational animal, a brute beast, to the self-control of chapter 1, which Tim exhorted us to be like and to put on. You see, these guys are non-stop pleasure seekers. Between the um, middle of 13, you see, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you with eyes full of adultery. They'll never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. You see, they revel in the daytime. Even during church, it's a 24-hour thing. Their eyes are full of adultery. So if they're looking at you, chatting with you, smiling at you, laughing at your jokes, they're looking at your wife. They may even be looking at your daughter. You see, it's a shocking warning which we're getting through chapter 2. They never stop sinning. Their mind is adulterous. Their eyes and heart are inclined to the wrong things. It's hidden behind their eyes. Shameless thoughts. And with shameless thoughts come shameless actions. They deny the master who bought them. You see, they're dedicated to their own gain. In verse 14. It says, they are experts in greed. That word, experts, it's the word trained. And if you think of gymnasium, that's, that's the Greek word behind it. They're actually gymnasium in greed. They work out, they pump iron so that they can, may be able to achieve and get. You see, they're training in greed. If they can think of ways, they will do it. They will plot, they will scheme, they will train. You see, they are likened to Balaam, where he was shamed by um, not hearing the voice of God, but he was spoken to through, by God through a donkey to shame. You see, um, Balaam, he, he, was, he was being paid by a Moabite king to bring curses on Israel, but he couldn't because God wouldn't allow it. But he was going to do it for money, you see. To curse the church, to curse God's people, is to curse uh, God himself for money. Shameful greed. No wonder God calls them accursed children or an accursed brood in verse 14. These things, all these things we just covered there, they will teach and they will endorse. But we are to be aware of their fate. And so my last point. The fatal illusion of the false teacher's freedom as we look to the last verses. They're described as springs without water, mists driven by storms. You see, 
in the time and place where they were writing this, it was a very arid land. It still is, actually. And to have a water spring before a traveller must have been such a delight and pleasure that even if you were struggling in the heat of day, thirsty, lips cracked, that you would run to it. Don't imagine getting there and there's no water. You see, they promise so much. They promise freedom and liberty. They, they try and reason with our hearts. They sidestep scripture or twist it so that it may give us what we desire. But it's all an illusion. That's what uh, water and uh, springs without water and mists are, are driven by a storm. You see, sin, no matter how alluring, no matter how much it promises, it will never deliver. You will never be satisfied. These men are described as insatiable. They themselves cannot be satisfied. Yet they say, come and do likewise, and you will be. It's a load of lies and rubbish. God is saying, listen to me, not to the false teachers. It's a lie that says, there is freedom in Christ. And they say that this freedom in Christ is a green light to do what you want. For we've been saved by grace, and grace will continue to save us. Therefore, we do not need to do anything for, because everything else comes from God. What are you going to do with your freedom? Indulge yourself. It's okay. That's the message they say. And that's what our itching ears want to hear, isn't it? And our hearts want to hear. To endorse what we do wrong as right. To say, I'm okay with God. When you're not. You see, this argument of grace is dangerous. Because if you push it to the extremes, you say we're no longer under the law, under the judgment of God, there we can do, therefore, anything that we want. But lust is not freedom. The gratification of lust is not freedom. You see, it's just a different master. Are we being led by our passions, our corrupted passions and desires? Or are we being led by the revelation and beauty and wonder of who Jesus Christ is and eternal life that is promised through him? You see, we're wrong to think that this sexual freedom that we're trying to, um, that we hear so much of in the news nowadays is an invention of the last few decades. You know, it's not a revolution as it was coined in the 60s. You know, it's not a sexual revolution. But it was then a casting off of society that was largely influenced by the Bible and its teaching. You see, is it slavery to be willingly committed to Christ? And how does that compare with following the corrupted passions of your own desires? Well, the answer is no. It is not slavery to commit yourself to Christ. And you see the fate of these false teachers. For them, the gloom of utter darkness. Verse 19, they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. You see, you can 
pick apart 2 Peter 2, have a look at all the words and see what it means. But essentially, this is a massive warning. This is a gunshot over the bow of the ship to say, wake up. Be careful. Be on your guard. Because there is destruction and judgment for those who do not follow Jesus. Okay, I opened with it. It starts with a but at the beginning and ends with dog's vomit. You see, it says, Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Now, I've never seen a dog eat vomit. I'm, I'm, a, I'm sure dog owners would, have, would nod. I don't think that's a very particularly uh, glamorous sight, is it? I've seen them eat their own feces. That's pretty foul. But this is the picture. This is the grossness of knowing and uh, knowing what Jesus Christ is like. Hearing what Jesus Christ is like, but yet denying him. To denying him, to say, well, this all is charade. You can do what you want. Well, we have we have a good church here, and I hope to God that none of us are false teachers. But they arise among us. Never be um, so casual as to um, disregard this chapter. And these false teachers, they're loved, aren't they? They're popular. Because they appear to have your best interests at heart. But condoning and encouraging sin through the twisting and manipulation of Scripture. They do not love you. They exploit you. They love themselves. And they prey on unsteady souls. The Bible becomes just a mere guidebook. Something that you can pick up. Choose bits which you like. Jesus can become anything you want him to be, but one thing he will not be is a saviour. If you do that. Regard who Jesus is. Do not deny him. Be like Noah. Be like Lot. There is a battle of the voices. God, God's voice through Scripture, God's vo- uh, and the man's voice through the false teachers. Well, let's stay well clear of the edge. Let's be well grounded in our Bibles. Let's look after one another. Watch each other's backs. Love one another now. So when it comes to that hard time when you have to correct someone, where you see them going astray, they will say thank you instead of saying shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. We need to watch each other's back because the echoes of the false teachers are with us. We may not have a false teacher directly in our midst as of we speak, but we need to be wary of their voice. There is inevitability. You will hear false teaching. So what are we going to do if we fail to pay attention to the warning of chapter 2 as we go back to our homes and workplace? What is it if it's not listening to the echoes of false teachers which whispers in our ears, it doesn't really matter. Ignore chapter 2. That's not the case. Peter is absolutely adamant that we may be on our guard See, that's what he says in chapter 3, doesn't he? Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men 
and fall from your secure position. You want to get from A to B. God will deliver those who are faithful. Let's be rooted and grounded in, in God's word and be careful of those who preach otherwise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the warning in 2 Peter 2. We pray that you will guard us. Pray that we will be diligent to spot those who preach other things rather than the gospel, who deny Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your justice. And we thank you for your love. We thank you that there is a right and there is a wrong. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his blood has brought us into his own life to be right before you and not to be found in the wrong. We thank you for the promise that you will deliver those who love you and those who strive to go your way. But above all, Heavenly Father, as we hear the message and the warning of chapter 2, guard us as we are diligent and grounded and secure in our faith in the scriptures that you have so graciously given to us. Amen.